Well, good morning, everybody. I have good news. Um, actually, a spiritual victory of sorts. I did not fall over the last week. I did not fall into that deep pit of spiritual darkness that comes upon me when I put up outdoor Christmas lights. Can you relate? Uh, come really close. In the past, this year was a little different. You know, putting up outdoor Christmas lights is just not my thing. It's not, it's not something I enjoy. It's, for me, kind of like having a cavity filled. You know, or a bone set, or colonoscopy, or taking out the garbage. I mean, uh, it's not fun, but we enjoy the results. And our family enjoys the results, so it's something I do um, prayerfully every year. Just aware that that pit is a step away. Now here we are, this is the first week of the five weeks of Advent. So what we're going to do is look at five different Christmas stories. Today the story of Zechariah. Then it'll be Mary, the uh, shepherds, uh, the birth of Jesus, and we'll conclude with the wise men. But because of what's going on in our culture today, I mean this unsettledness we all have. Uh, kind of a discouragement or, or, or fear, we, we have this sense of foreboding, maybe even uh, darkness. I mean, think of all the movies that are uh, about dystopia. And then the way life is coming at us hard and we're feeling overwhelmed and everybody's so stressed. Uh, because of that, we don't want to just look at these Christmas stories as stories. We want to mine for what each and every one of us teach us about one of the deepest yet most elusive longings of the human heart, and that is the longing for joy. You're longing for joy. So today, when we come to Luke chapter 1, we come to this first story we're going to look at, the story of Zechariah. It's a story in three parts. We're going to look first at his suffering, then his doubt, and then his joy, his transformation. So grab your Bibles, and we'll go to Luke chapter 1. But before we read this, I want you to understand that really one of the ways we can look at the Bible is that the Bible is one long journal on the loss, the recovery, and the completion of joy. It's a journal on joy. The Bible is a story about uh, uh, joy misplaced, joy found, and then joy fulfilled. But nowhere is this symphony of biblical joy more beautiful, more uh, brilliant than surrounding the advent of Jesus Christ, the birth of the Son. Why? Because Jesus has come to give you your joy back. To take what was misplaced, that you might find it, that you might be fulfilled in it. And when we talk about biblical joy, when we talk about this joy we're talking about, we're not talk I'm not talking about a momentary buzz or a temporary uh, sense of happiness based on some cool events that have uh, come down in your life. I'm talking about a deep-seated, uh, sustained delight, a sense of wholeness, the Old Testament concept of shalom. Because you know Jesus in your heart and you are alive, awake to all that he has done for you. So let's start with the suffering of Zechariah. Let's pick it up in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. 
and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So righteous but reeling, holy but hurting. And to make matters worse, Zechariah was a priest, full-time ministry. And because Jewish priests could marry, he had married a godly woman by the name of Elizabeth, who was a descendant of spiritual royalty, a descendant of Aaron, who was the very first of Israel's long line of high priests. He was the older brother of Aaron. That's Elizabeth's heritage, her ancestry. But their spiritual and social standing in the community was vacated, empty and hollow. Because they lived in a highly family-oriented culture. It was ancient Near Eastern culture, highly family-oriented. And to be childless was a high-temperature affliction. Actually, it was a public disgrace. Elizabeth uses that word in verse 25. Why? Because to be childless, to be infertile, was thought to be a sign of God's judgment, God's condemnation for personal sin. So what this means, if we want to personalize it for Elizabeth, is that on and off for decades, decades, Elizabeth had cried herself to sleep. Zechariah had wept nearby because the very thing they wanted most in life, a child, was beyond their grasp, beyond their experience. Yet amazingly, just like Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, in spite of their suffering, in spite of their affliction, they stayed righteous. They continued to cling to God. Now for you today, maybe it's infertility. Or maybe it's abandonment and loneliness. Maybe your life or your health or your work is blown up. And you're feeling anxious, you're feeling discouraged, and you don't know where to go. This morning... What I want to talk about here on the front end, and then we'll get to the ultimate resolution at the back end of this message, is I want to talk about how you and I handle low temperature and high temperature affliction and stay righteous, like this couple. I want to suggest three answers. Number one, never judge God's goodness by the extent of your pain. Uh, Don't do that, because what happens is you will conclude then God is not good, because I just lost my job, or because this happened. And the Bible tells us God is always good. He's good all the time. And we see this over and over in the pages of the Bible. I mean, think of some of the great uh, characters of the Bible, Job, Joseph. 
Naomi, Jeremiah, Isaiah in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, all of them like Zechariah and Elizabeth experienced decade after decade. Now, did you hear me? Decade after decade of heartache and public humiliation. But instead of getting up because they conclude, God, you're not good, look what's going on in our lives, they stayed righteous. They clung to God. You see, you are not, as a follower of Christ, you are never your circumstances. Your divorce, your disease, your setback, uh, your, your stress, your, your loss, your singleness, your marriage, or whatever, if you are a child of God, you have been adopted into God's forever family. You are beloved son or daughter of the living God. His house is your house, and your picture is on his refrigerator. And God is always good. He's good all the time. Now, I mentioned this first point because if you believe this, and if you don't make this mistake, then you're taking the first step towards sustainable, meaningful joy. A second answer to this question of how do we handle high temperature, low temperature affliction and stay godly is uh, never conclude, don't ever conclude that God doesn't care when he doesn't answer prayer. Uh, Don't go there. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is we have small brains. A, a, A second is the Bible tells us God hears every single one of our prayers. And the third is that God is infinite and infinite in his wisdom and his love and his plan. And he's going to respond in different ways, better ways than what we want. And that's what we see in this story. I mean, they're praying for decades and decades. But God is not answering the biggest prayer of their lives. And somehow along the way, they became okay with unanswered prayer. You know, the greatest, biggest unanswered prayer in the Bible was one of Jesus' prayers. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, Father, take this cup from me. And the Father says to him, no, son, I'm not going to do that. And Jesus went on and said, okay, Not my will, but your will be done. I will take, I'm speaking personally, I will take some huge unanswered prayers to the grave. And I will let God resolve them in his time. So will each and every one of you. Unanswered prayer is a part of life, the the spiritual life. And the point I am making is never give up on the, uh, the love of God because of what you want from God. God is not a vending machine. He is the king. And when you and I can get to the point 
in the low temperature and the high temperature afflictions where we're saying, okay, not my will, but your will be done. Man, we're down the road. And we're headed to significant joy. And third, let me add this, and then I'll come back to this at the end of um, uh, my sermon this morning. Uh, uh, Understand that suffering, please, please, I want this for you to understand that suffering is not a failure of God's plan. It's a part of God's plan for you. It's a part of his plan. So what do we see? We see... God working out his perfect plan for Zechariah and Elizabeth. I mean, he could have answered this decades ago, but he didn't. He's working out his perfect plan for them in ways they never dreamed impossible. And so he's going to use their infertility plus their advanced age to demonstrate his miraculous power in the birth of their son, John all of which points to even the greater miracle of the birth of Jesus Christ. You see what this means? What it means is whether it's long nights for you in a hospital room or real difficulty with a foster child or or, or disappointment, The things you hate the most in your life are the very things God is using to grow you the most and to glorify him the most. It's Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now let's go on. That's his suffering. Let's go on and let's look at doubt here, how doubt comes into play. In verses 8, 9, and 10, as the story continues... We are told that Zechariah is a selected, chosen by lot, to go into the temple, not the Holy of Holies, but just opposite the Holy of Holies, and stand and serve at the altar of incense, which is a picture of the prayers of God's people, the presence of God. And because there were so many Jewish priests, uh, to be able to be selected to do that was like once-in-a-lifetime experience. And a great privilege, and Zechariah was thrilled. But he had no idea, no idea what was coming next. So let's pick it up in verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, now you got it, right? An angel showed up? No, no, really, an angel is there. He's on the opposite side of the Holy of Holies, and suddenly there's an angel. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, just like you and I would be. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. I keep praying that for my kids as a joke. And to make ready, and here it is, and to make ready 
a people prepared for the Lord. Now, what went wrong? What went wrong is Zechariah doubted God, doubted the angel, doubted God, because he was focused exclusively on his circumstances, on his pain, especially their old age, as he says. So there's some humor here or irony, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, a supernatural being appears to Zechariah. And Zechariah, seeing the supernatural, supernatural being, addresses the supernatural being, the angel Gabriel, and says, I don't believe in the supernatural power of God. Now, I know you're here, and I see that, but I don't believe you. Because we're really old. In other words, uh, thanks for showing up, but I don't believe you have the power to perform a miracle in our lives. Do you get that? Now let me just say, when an angel shows up in your life, don't do that. Uh, Don't say that to Gabriel, okay? And so Zechariah doubts. Now let me unpack this. Because there's an interesting contrast between Zechariah and Mary, the mother of Jesus, here in Luke chapter 1. So we go a little further into the story, and the same angel Gabriel appears to Mary, announcing Mary will be the mother of the Messiah. And just like Zechariah asked a question in verse 18, so Mary asked Gabriel a question in verse 34. And her question is this, how will this be? Uh, Since, after all, I'm a virgin. How can this happen? But unlike Zechariah, there is no divine discipline for Mary because she asked this question. Do you see that difference? Now, what does that difference mean? Well, what it means is there's different types of doubt according to the Bible. Now today, before we get to what the Bible says, let me just put it in terms of where we are today. Today we polarize doubt. That's a little bit of an overstatement. But on the one hand, in our secular and academic circles in the West, man, doubt is seen as a good thing. Skepticism is a sign of intelligence. So it's positive to doubt this, it's positive to doubt that. And so the irony is that thinking people today doubt everything except their ability to think. But at the other end of the spectrum, if that's good doubt, today there's bad doubt. And that's the doubt that has been a slow build for years in our churches. Where we tend to communicate that if you're a follower of Christ and you're doubt, that that is really a terrible thing. And so we tend to demonize doubt. And so people who doubt feel guilty. They feel condemned. And as a result, we're silent about our doubts. I mean, when was the last time you said to somebody, you know, I'm struggling, I'm really struggling with doubt. Would you help me? And so we have this polarization uh, going on. But in the Bible, now here we come to the Bible, in the Bible it's different and we see it here. Bad doubt is the doubt of a closed mind. 
Well, thanks, Gabriel, uh, for the good news, but we're, uh, we're advanced in age and it's just not going to happen. Good doubt, however, is the doubt of Mary. It's a doubt of an open mind. Okay, thank you for telling me this, Gabriel, but will you give me a couple of details? How's this going to happen? And so some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. Now, it can't happen, Zechariah says. Other doubt is seeking answers, and that's Mary, this godly woman. Woman. Now, look at how Tim Keller puts this in his little book on Christmas. He says this, There are people like Mary who are open to the truth and are willing to relinquish sovereignty over their lives if they can be shown that the truth is other than what they thought. And there are those, like Zechariah, who use doubts as a way of staying in control of their lives and keeping their minds closed. Which kind of doubt do you have? Uh, Which one characterizes your life? You see, the one is born in intellectual arrogance. The other is born in this critical kingdom virtue, intellectual humility. It's Zechariah versus Mary, but the reality is all of us are like Zechariah. All of us have doubts of a closed mind. So, for example, today we, uh, we believe the Bible was written by men, but we doubt it was written by God. We believe Jesus was a man. We doubt he was God. We believe that maybe Jesus was born at Christmas, but we doubt that he was raised from the dead on Easter. And for many of us as Christians, we believe God can answer prayer. We just don't believe God will answer my prayer. And so we have pockets in our lives of doubt of a closed mind. But if you, as a follower of Christ, do not expect God to answer your prayer or that God has the ability to send an angel or to part the sea or to stop the sun or to heal a disease or fill a gap or to change a life or to um, perform a miracle, you may pray like Zechariah, but you're going to be praying with the doubt of a closed mind. Now, the Bible talks about doubt. But there aren't many sections where it addresses the danger of doubt directly. But we have one in James chapter 1. So look at what James says in chapter 1. The context here is trials, afflictions, suffering. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And then James moves to our battle with doubt. And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not what? Doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. You know, as I've thought about this subject of doubt, I've concluded, I could be wrong at this, but I've concluded at least at this point that doubt is a lot like denial. And that both ignore the truth because the truth is too painful. 
And so we harbor these doubts, doubts of a closed mind, because the truths are inconvenient. Or the truths are uncomfortable. Or they're threatening. Or they're all-encompassing. And if you're a student, man, we see this with students all the time. I mean, I was like that. Bishop was a U.S. Special Forces soldier. He's been in the Special Forces for a number of years. But the last year was brutal. He got wounded. He hadn't been home for a year, and now because of his wounds, he found himself one snowy night on the doorsteps of his house in North Dakota. And he knocked on the door, and a couple of his kids opened the door, younger kids, and to their shock and to their surprise, there stood dad. Bishop, the wounded soldier, had come home. 2,000 years ago, at that first Christmas, Jesus Christ arrived on the doorstep of humanity. He stepped into the world only to be wounded, severely wounded later. And for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been knocking on the door of the human heart. Inviting us to come just as we are, regardless of what we have done, to come to him and to believe him. This Jesus who is fully God, fully man, who died on the cross in our place for our sins and offers us life and union with him forever. This Jesus has come. For, jo- uh, for Bishop's kids, it, it wasn't doubt, it was immediate delight. Where are you with Jesus? Is it doubt or is it delight? You see, the point of James chapter 1 is it's doubt that leads to instability and to death. But it's our delight, our belief in Jesus that leads to stability and life forever. So we all have doubts. Some are honest questions. They're the doubts of an open mind. Others are doubts of a closed mind. Think about that as we move into Christmas. Do you have doubts that are holding you back from Jesus? Now let's go on and let's move to the end of the story and let's look at this transformation and and Zechariah's joy. This joy that kind of comes out of nowhere. So in the final paragraphs of Luke chapter 1, we see in verses 57 and 58 that John the Baptist is born. The prophecy has been fulfilled. And he's born surrounded by joy. Then after he's born, after he's circumcised, there's this debate about what to name this child. Now Elizabeth is a strong, godly woman. She knows her own mind. 
And she knows that Gabriel, the angel, said explicitly and specifically that this baby is not to be named after his father, but he is to be named John. So she is unflinching. She is insistent. We will call this baby John. Now this is where Zechariah, who's disappeared, now reemerges in the story. So look at verse 62. Then they made signs to his father, that's Zechariah, to find out what he would like to name the child. Now scholars tell us that he's been unable to speak for about a year. Think about that, about a year. Now they're making signs. Now the fact that they have to make signs to Zechariah suggests that he can't hear either. Couldn't speak. Couldn't hear for a year. God takes our doubts seriously. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet, his iPad. Well, you laugh. I mean, we think the word tablet is new. No, look. We just haven't discovered him yet. So he asked for his cord, a charger, and his iPad. And then to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. His very first words were praise. Who is this guy? What the text is is telling us that over the last year there's been this wonderful transformation because once a deeply wounded, somewhat bitter man strangled by some doubts, strangled by his circumstances, his unbelief, has now become a man with a deep-seated conviction that God is good, that God fulfills his word, that God answers prayer. And as great as the birth of his son, John, is, what's even greater is about to be birth of the Messiah, Jesus. And so when we come to these last two paragraphs in Luke chapter 1, this song of praise, what we discover is, is Zechariah. Zechariah is now bubbling over with praise, with joy. Because praise and joy are two sides of the same coin. So look at verse 68. Let me line out a couple of this, uh, of these for you. What is Zechariah doing in verse 68? He's looking ahead. This is a prophecy. And he's praising God for the coming, the visitation of Jesus, the Advent, Christmas. In the next verse, verse 69, He uses a metaphor. Uh, The horn of an animal was the source of an animal's power. So he uh, uh, borrows that and he praises God for God's power, God's horn. God's power made evident in the birth of Jesus Christ. Then if you skip down to verse 72, he shines his light on the mercy of God. Later he will describe it as the tender mercy of God. Think about that. Your God isn't just merciful, he's tender to you and his mercy. And he talks in verse 72 as well as elsewhere about the faithfulness of God. Then in verse 77, now he's praising God for Jesus. He's praising God for his son, John. He goes back to Jesus and the forgiveness of sin. He praises God for the forgiveness of sin that Jesus will bring. And then we come to verse 78, and this is by far my favorite. Because again, he borrows another metaphor. And by the way, one of the signs of spiritual imagination is that you think in metaphors. You use metaphors to help drive the truth 
of the gospel into your life. So he borrows a metaphor and he tells us that the advent of Jesus, that Jesus will be to the soul what the sun rises to the planet. In other words, that Jesus, God has given us a sunrise to point to Christmas. And every day you look at a sunrise, we see Jesus. It's a metaphor. And there's metaphors all around us. And when our spiritual imagination kicks in, God has given all of this so we might press into the wonder and the glory of God, which is just on the other side of sight and which is visible in creation. You see what's going on? Do you see how you can handle low temperature and high temperature affliction and stay godly, stay righteous? And the answer is by locking your eyes on Jesus. Yes, there's going to be suffering. Yes, there's going to be doubt. But when you see Jesus who has rescued us, come to rescue us, to adopt us, to give us union in him, to carry us throughout our lives in his arms of tender mercy, man, that changes us. The, the joy for Zechariah is taking, it's a move of taking his eyes off himself, off his circumstances, and fixing his eyes on Jesus. And the fullness of our salvation in him. Do you see Jesus? Have you lost a child? Or a loved one? God did. Have you experienced high temperature affliction? Suffering? Rejection, abandonment, loneliness. Jesus did. Your suffering is not a punishment. It's part of God's plan to clear away the fog so that you might see the premacy, the beauty, and the tender mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come to give you your joy back. He changed Zechariah's life. He can change anyone's, including yours. Jesus Christ stands on the doorstep. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He's inviting you to come to him. And to keep coming to him each and every day, each and every circumstance of your life. Let's pray. Father, how do we get our minds around Christmas? God becoming a man. The rescue operation begins. The, the staging for victory is in place. Oh God, we love you.
Teach us, uh, teach us, teach us, teach us to love you more. 